Previously on the Big Trade series. Effectively, the markets that we're looking at this day and age is very different to some extent from the markets that your、uh, grandmother was looking at, right? Because central banks are playing that much larger of a role. Shareholder yield is the concept for the readers that or listeners that it doesn't make any sense to just look at. Cash flow distributions through dividend yield and valuation metrics in general. You know, you could have a valuation metric that'll underperform the market, and this is the challenge with using a fundamental or really any active approach. Without further ado, we're pleased to present the next installment of this conversation. You are now listening to the Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. I had a chance to speak to William Thorndike. He wrote The Outsiders. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar that with that one. It, it was basically about. Economic goodwill, right, and which is a Buffett concept, which highlights executives that are great capital allocators in in a nutshell, and usually a lot of them are going to be having consistent track records of share buybacks. I wonder if shareholder yield takes into account or could take into account the capital allocation strategies of the CEO, because if say a CEO is able to buy. You know, make acquisitions at good valuations and are able to turn that into, you know, significant earnings and revenue drivers for the the acquirer. How how does that eventually, or or does shareholder yield have the ability to spot that or to red flag what's actually happening when these acquisitions are occurring? So. Wonderful book, one of my favorites, and it interesting because Buffett has often said, "Look, you know, one of the most important jobs of the CEO is capital allocation and, and、right. what they do with the cash the company has." Most people focus on the sexy part, which is operations. How many, you know,、um, CDs is this company selling? That's probably a bad example this day and age. But、yeah. how many cars is this company selling? What new models are they coming out with? What's the new technology? But really, half of what they do is, is, you know, what do they do with the money once they have it? And traditionally, CEOs aren't groomed and don't come from that sort of background, so they're often not good at it.、And、we see this in the U.S. where and, and globally, where the buyback cycle is very highly correlated simply to what markets are doing, and, and when companies should be buying back their stock, which、mm-hmm. is when they're cheap. And have an objective measure for that. You know, some CEOs just use buybacks as something to do, and they have cash sitting around. They don't know what else to do with it. So traditionally, that's when markets are are having a great run. So an example right now, but when they should be buying them back, for example, 2009, Buffett has a great example. He says, "Look, I'll buy back Berkshire stock when it trades below. I think it's 1.2 or 1.3 times book. Now it never gets there, but if it did, he said he would be a heavy buyer." And that's a really important、um, example where a CEO should only look to buy back the stock if the stock's trading below intrinsic value.、If、stock's trading above intrinsic value, it makes a lot of sense to be able to use stock as an acquisition tool. 
for buying other companies that may be cheap. But the CEO should be somewhat agnostic as to the situation. The problem is most CEOs, because they're CEOs and they have a high degree of overconfidence, want to believe that their stock is always cheap, right? So they look to always buy back their stock. But one of the beauties of using a shareholder yield metric is you're not just focusing on buybacks, but you're focusing on net buybacks. So there's plenty of companies out there that are just issuing stock. And a good example is the tech companies that do this through options where you're, you're getting diluted. And so there's even examples where people are buying these dividend stocks that may yield 3 or 4%. Yeah. But if you look, they're actually issuing 3 or 4% a year in stock or 5 or 6%. And so you're actually, it's a net loss on the, on the you know, yield. But a lot of people don't focus on that. So it's one of the beauties of it. So yeah, you have to be able to look at companies that historically most of the research has shown is you want companies that are reducing their total assets rather than growing them because M&A is kind of a historically shown to be not on aggregate, not wealth creating for the shareholder. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of empire building. So it's a little more challenging than metric. But yeah, dividends, distributing, most investors just care about the cash getting distributed. They don't care how. So dividends or net buybacks is usually a a great transmission. How would you kind of look, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the current capital structure and the the corporate actions of IBM, but that's kind of an interesting dichotomy to me. Um, Share buybacks, dividends, no growth, large cap. How would you address something like that? You know, I don't speak specifically to IBM and I in general try to stay away from talking about specific stocks but sure. a good example because it's the largest in the US is Apple. You know, Apple pursues the dual um, cash distribution of not only dividends but also buybacks. So none of the dividend funds are ever going to own by Apple. They may eventually as the yield gets higher because the yield is f- relatively low, but they're they're doing so much in buybacks that the actual yield is is quite substantially higher. Granted, that's before they had such a massive year last year. But but basically what you want, and the key to this approach is, is not just the aggregate amount they're paying out, but the, the, the companies also have to be cheap in my mind if you're doing the buybacks. The last thing you want is an expensive company mm-hmm. buying back stock. There tends to be a, a bifurcation, and I talk about this a lot, between price and valuation. You're one of the few guys that I hear about that talks about, you know, the valuation, the various different special features of the company in terms of its corporate actions, like shareholder yield. But it seems like you're still very cognizant of price as well. How much weighting do you put at each? Because one of the key issues that I see towards a lot of fund managers or people on the sell side is sometimes people tend to be a little dogmatic about their thesis of the underlining fundamentals of a particular idea they like, whereas price is not confirming that. I feel as if you're going to manage a fund, especially an open-end fund, you're accountable in some shape or form to deliver that performance, despite it's one of the little dirty secrets in our industry, right? That you have to try to deliver that performance. So... How do you address that? Because I, I hear you verbally articulating, hey, you know, thesis is great, uh, but price isn't really confirming. So what do you do in that case? 
Well, we, you know, we have a lot of different investment approaches. So vital to any of them is that you understand what the goal and characteristics of that approach is. So for example, we have a buy and hold global portfolio that's doing nothing other than rebalancing once a year. We have a deep value portfolio that's buying the 11 cheapest countries in the world and rebalancing once a year. But the knowledge is that you need to one, have time for that deep value to work and rebalancing on a higher frequency than yearly actually hurts. You could even rebalance it once every two years, which is funny because there's a lot of people out there are constantly asking me, Matt, what are update the valuations for these countries around the world? I said, that's fine. I'm happy to do this. But you really only need to look once a year. And the constant examination of a value portfolio is, is actually not beneficial. It's actually harmful. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have something like a momentum or trend approach where you do need to update it more often. Um, and that has to be either monthly or even weekly sort of a more or a lot of people do it daily an active much more active approach because price moves around on a different time frame than than value may so you have to be able to understand whatever your strategy may be and the psychology is totally different for each and the emotions of a buy and hold investor are going to be totally different but none less challenging than a trend follower and so what's important to people that we always say is there's plenty of investment approaches that work. Buy and hold's perfectly fine, but you have to understand the benefits and drawbacks. And drawbacks for buy and hold is you have to sit through long drawdowns, usually when everyone else is going through it, which also happens to be highly correlated to the business cycle and recessions in the general economy. But it, it's emotions that you have to be able to sit there and simply do nothing. And that's hard for a lot of people, right? So right. There, there's other approaches that they could use that may be better suited to them. I mean, my mom, for example, is perfectly happy sitting in muni bonds and CDs and that's, she sleeps at night. So mm-hmm. no matter what it is, we always say, you, you know, should have an approach that allows you to, uh, to, to sleep, to sleep well. Was she buying up uh, muni bonds last year? She, she's, she's the classic you know, it's funny because we talk about it in my new book that's coming out. I use her an example about people often will build their investment thesis based on their own personal experiences, which is reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes from us living on the savanna a long time ago, where if you saw a tiger eat two of your friends, chances are next time you see a tiger, you're you know you're going to run from it, and that's smart. So the investment experience of someone like my mother who grew up the majority of her investing career or sweet spot during the 80s and 90s bull market. Well, her advice to me was always, yeah, Meb, you buy stocks, you hold them, you put them away. Fantastic advice for that period. I mean, her, my grandfather worked for one of the best performing stocks of all time. So of course that makes sense. But if you then say, ask my grandmother who, you know, lived through the Great Depression or you know anyone investing in Japan for the past 20 years, let's ignore the last two years, but the past 20 plus years, or the average Russian or Chinese who saw the capital market evaporate, they're very different comments. Or someone who even you know lived through the 70s uh, type of inflationary environment. So people build their stories around what's happened, and, and the current real example for the younger generation of investors, you know, people call them millennials, they've lived through these two monster bear markets. And most of the ones I talked to are like, what's, I, why would I invest in stocks? You know, exactly. it's, I don't, 
I have no yeah. idea. They don't return anything. They lose 60%. It's a scam. That's changing over the last two years, by the way. They now all are, my friends are interested in investing again, but in general. <laughs> but that, you're at all time highs now, right? That's correct, right. And so, so when you go back to my mom, you know, she is a very emotional investor, but she knows that. So she has built in, you know, her system, which is a diversified, very low risk portfolio. And she's happy with that. Now, that doesn't mean she's also the all time great counter sentiment indicator where, you know, when things are really bottoming, she'll call me and say, we need to probably sell this. So, but she, she hasn't said much in the last few years. So, cause she's been, you know, she's, her portfolio is pretty exposed to a general growth sort of environment. The U S has, has done well. Right. Right. Sounds like you owe her some advisor fees. Yeah, seriously. Seriously. <laughs> Regarding um, Global Value, which is one of the m- more recent books prior to the one that you're working on, and you, we'll talk about that more in depth after, uh, wh- what can the readers or listeners extract from that book? Global Value is one that says you you can come up, the problem with market cap weighting a portfolio, so in the U.S., you're simply weighting the portfolio based on size, how big the company is. Right. And size is purely determined by price. So all you're doing is putting more in companies that are bigger than smaller. And and that's fine. That's a great way to invest, but it's not mm-hmm. the best way. You could weight the portfolio based on almost any other metric. It doesn't matter. Letters of the alphabet, price to earnings, dividend, you know, dogs of the doubt, those will beat the market cap weighting, even equal weighting. Mm-hmm. Because market cap weighting overweights expensive companies. And the same thing happens in, in the global portfolio where the countries that are the most expensive have a higher weighting usually because they're bigger. And so, for example, the U.S., this often surprises people, is half of world market cap. So the U.S. is also one of the most expensive countries in the world right now. We don't think it's a bubble. It's not terrible. It's nothing like the 90s. But in general... It's on the expensive side. And so most people in the U.S. especially put 70% of their portfolio, of their stock portfolio in U.S. stocks and only 30 in foreign. And if you're a diehard indexer, love John Bogle, Vanguard you know, style investor, at a minimum you should put half in foreign, but no one does because it's uncomfortable. This doesn't just happen in the U.S. I actually tweeted this out and it'll be in the upcoming book is that it happens in Canada, it happens in Australia, it happens in the UK, it happens everywhere where most people put most of their stock assets in their own country and it's called home country bias and they do it because it's more comfortable, they're more familiar, it's the Peter Lynch style of investing. Now, that's particularly harmful and the US is a great example right now when the bigger countries are the most expensive. So if you go back to the 80s, Japan had the biggest bubble we've ever seen, so they had a long-term valuation PE what we call CAPE ratio yeah. of almost 100. So that's double the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the U.S. And one of the reasons Japan has had such horrible returns the following two decades is not because of demographics or they're uncompetitive or zombie banks, all of which are possible contributors. But for the equity market, it simply had to work off this massive bubble. So in Japan was, um, I think, almost half of world market cap back in the 80s. So if you market cap weight the portfolio it can be a huge drag on returns. And a great example is research affiliates 
multi hundred billion dollar um, money manager down in in Newport Beach showed that if you invest simply in the largest market cap stock in the in the U.S., that stock underperforms the market by about three percent a year going forward for the next ten years. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens with sectors. If you invest in the largest company in energy or tech, that that stock underperforms. And there's valid reason, right? It's capitalism. Once you get big and you make these killer iPhones, well, guess what? Every other company in the world wants part of that pie because you're making billions of dollars. And so next thing you know, you now have Samsung and Android phones and all these other phones that are competing with Apple. And so it's simply creative destruction. That's a wonderful feature of the capitalistic society, free market. Um, however, if you're a stock investor, you want to avoid market cap weighting. And so this is what all it says. It says, look, if you evaluate a global portfolio, and right now, you know, the challenges of that are the same as valuating a U.S. stock portfolio. Is, is value investors mean you often are investing where there's a lot of pain or where companies are not doing great or, or uh, stock markets or countries are not performing well. So the classic example right now, U.S. is expensive. The good news is most of the world's pretty cheap. Trades for mm-hmm. the long-term CAPE around 15. And then if you look at the top quartile, the top 25% of valuation, it's trading at a cape of around eight. Uh, and that Now, the bad news is you have to have exposure to a lot of Europe, a lot of emerging Europe, Hungary, Czech, struggling Europe in Italy, but also the basket cases of Brazil, Russia, and even Greece. And the valuation indicators correlate pretty highly with simply drawdown. Mm-hmm. So investing in the cheap countries means you're investing in the countries that are already down 40, 60, 80 uh, percent, whereas investing in the expensive ones are often the ones that are near all-time highs or at all-time highs. So it, it takes a def- definitely a little different psyche to be able to say, you know what, all right, fine, I'm going to go buy a basket of these countries. And we never recommend just buying one because, you, you know, just like buying one stock, you could easily lose 90 percent. But buying a basket historically has worked great over time. Meb, what do you think about, because you know that whole statistic about what retail investors own in terms of their portfolio and how they tend to be country-centric where they're currently residing. How how do you think, you know, and it it sounds like probably when, when someone hears that statistic, they just think, okay, well, they're buying it because they know it and they feel comfortable. It's like you said, the Peter Lynch strategy. But what I'm starting to notice is that, you know, I spent a lot of time in Asia here and I'm starting to see it in the U.S. is capital controls play a very big role in this whole ability to diversify. For example, a lot of countries, now even the U.S., is going to try to do whatever they can to limit or restrict your foreign investments abroad. So almost as a byproduct on how the system is created, that that starts to restrict you from that diversification that you need. Now, the unfortunate thing, or the great thing for Americans is, number one, is that, like you said, it makes up a big portion of the global equity markets. So hypothetically, if you're sitting in Savannah and you have a big portfolio of U.S. equities, multinationals, it might actually work in your favor to some extent. The big concern is for a guy in a little country, you know, let's say in Mongolia or, 
you know, uh, Myanmar, where you could probably never out be able to be put in a position for you to diversify your portfolio due to the capital controls, account opening requirements, various different margin requirements. So that kind of almost is a byproduct of, of all of this. That's, that's kind of like a, a comment, but it, it'd be great to hear what you think about that. Cause yes, I get there's a whole nationalistic component, but then there's also like, Hey, if I individually go and open XYZ brokerage account here, there, and there, it's going to be difficult, right? And I'm going to need to meet the margin requirements for that account, assuming I'm a retail investor. Whereas, you know, you're coming from this from an institutional standpoint where you're in a capability to be in a position to open some of those accounts. But I also understand that you can buy, you know, large cap representation in the secondary market to some of the bigger markets in Asia and Europe to get that diversification as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the simplest thing, of course, is just to buy the global portfolio and be done with it. Um, the second note is one of the benefits of the world becoming more globalized is you see the correlations move up with a lot of the markets. And, and even if you wanted to have, let's say you were a U.S. investor that said, you know what, I'm paranoid because I don't want to invest in Russia or Vietnam or wherever it may be because there may mm-hmm. be capital controls and it's a huge headache. You know, you could actually sort U.S. companies based on foreign revenue and come up with a portfolio of even S&P 500 companies that looks very similar to a foreign portfolio because they get all the revenue from abroad. Right. So right. even the even the S&P gets something like a third of its revenue from, from abroad. So we live in a globalized world, so you're getting a global portfolio somewhat regardless. My point being is that, okay, assume we live in a globalized world that there has high correlations, that's even more argument to be agnostic and go anywhere the value is. Yeah. Um, the challenges of oh, opening brokerage accounts in the frontier markets all around the world, I can't really speak to. But, but the good news of having exchange-traded products that trade everywhere that will give you exposure to those markets, you know, we're living in a gold, kind of a golden era of investing for not just the professional, but also the retail as costs have come down. I mean, there's brokerages now that don't charge commissions. You know, our fund was the first ETF that doesn't charge a managed, a permanent, permanently doesn't charge a management fee. You know, the total expense ratio to buy a global portfolio comes in at 0.29%. It's the lowest cost asset allocation ETF in existence um, mm-hmm. in the U.S. And so that's a, that's a golden, t- I mean, for the ability for an investor with just one click to be able to buy something like 20 or 30,000 securities around the world, that's a beautiful thing. And so um, it's getting better. Now, that doesn't mean that markets won't continue to be volatile and things will implode and um, municipalities will default on their debt and companies will go to zero and they'll be fraught. You know, all those things will continue to happen, but the right. opportunity set, you know, is certainly, um, and that's good and it's bad. You know, it, it gives people more choices to do dumb things, but also if they have their wits about them, it's a, it's a wonderful time. An interesting counter to this whole way of analyzing these these global equities is because our benchmark is actually the MSCI World Index. So what we've done is we've segregated all the equities within the MSCI world based on sector. 
which is completely agnostic of which country it originates from, right? So if it's in uh, consumer discretionary or staples, then it would fit in there and it would be, you know, Unilever and Procter, for example. They would be in that basket. Then it would be a key question about which company is more attractive and based on, you know, what analysis you demonstrate. And I thought that was a very interesting approach. So rather than looking at the countries, you're actually looking at the sectors and trying to, you know, assess which one is the quality bellwether in that sector to represent a way in which you can beat the benchmark of the MSCI world. And if you look at sector rotation, either through a momentum or valuation approach, uh, it works well. Robert Schiller, recent Nobel laureate, has a great paper, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically sector rotation based on valuation. He takes it back to like 1900. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because he's looking at you know utilities and transports and everything else way back in the day. And you, know, you find similar episodes of, of bubbles and busts, but just simply valuating the sectors in the U.S. and also abroad makes a lot of sense, you know, and then there's a lot of approaches that, you know, we do some of this, but looking at sectors or different um, chunks of the market or different tranches of the market as a way to, to not just saying looking at countries, but there's other ways of looking at it or being agnostic as to where they are gives you a lot of breadth, a lot of, a lot of opportunity set all, all over. Right, right. Okay, Meb, you know, we've, we've talked for quite a bit. Let, let's wrap this up with something fun. You're going to be the first guy I'm going to do this with. Let's play a word association game. How about I say oh, a word? All right. You tell me what comes to mind. You've never had this regarding a capitals market conversation. So let's, let's, let's give this a shot. Let's do it. 2015. Mean reversion. <laughs> the United States. Expensive. Singapore. Oh, blank. <laughs> Millennials. Oh, boy. Word association. <laughs> I, 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 that's, that's, that's two blanks in a row. I, I feel like I should get three, and then, then I have to say something regardless. Struck but, out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right, let's go to the next one. Um, I, I, I nearly, I nearly, I'm 37, so I think I nearly, I don't know which generation I'm a part of. Am I Y? I, I narrowly miss millennials. I, I, I think. think you're Y. Yeah, I think you're Y. We're about near the same. We're, I think I, I you're grow, Y. I grow, this is going to be longer, this is going to be a long word association. I, I get very weary of the arbitrary kind of age-based, you know. People, Me too. The media loves grouping people into, you know, certain categories, and it's the most nonsensical thing. And there's yeah. a lot of companies, for example, that are targeting millennials, for example, for whatever reason, and trying to say that they have a certain different emotional attachment to money, which very well may be the case. But my point is that everyone has a very human attachment to money. And, you know, most of the millennials have never invested through a bear market or had a majority of their cash, they're starting to accumulate cash, so they're just simply young investors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it may not happen in 2015, it may not happen in 2016, but at some point they'll go through a big fat bear market. And in, in my opinion, they'll have the exact same behavioral issues that baby boomers and Gen Y and, you know, whatever the, you know, depression era people have when they lose money. And that is a common 
trait much rather than you know they're going to be somehow immune from that because they like technology so anyway it's uh that, that was the longest word yeah. association that's that sort of right we'll count that as a blank but all let's right. count that as a blank um global asset allocation surprisingly irrelevant wow and i'll give can, i'll give you the quick take on that is that one of the biggest findings from our study is that if you could go back to 1972 and out of the 15 odd vastly different portfolios that we examined and said, you know what, I have the ability to pick the very best, right? Mm -hmm. Fixed portfolio. So you can't just pick the best one each month, but over the period and then compared it to the worst, the difference is only about 1.5 percentage points a year. And you think about that and say, okay, huh? Now any given year they could diverge by let's call it i don't know 20 percentage points but it's kind of like baking as long as you have enough chocolate flour butter water whatever goes into cookies they should turn out okay and so in the the asset allocation example as long as you have some stocks and some bonds and hopefully some real assets like commodities or real estate you you end up in somewhat the same place Mm -hmm. and the, the huge takeaway in the book is that the average mutual fund expense ratio is 1.25. The average advisor in the U.S. is around 1%. Mm-hmm. So if you hired the average advisor, this isn't even the most expensive, this is the average advisor, who then put you in the average mutual fund, you would have transformed, hypothetically, if you had perfect um, insight into what would be the best performing asset allocation portfolio, you would have transformed that into the worst Right. So what most people spend all day, every day thinking about is, oh, man, how much should I put in stocks? How much should I put in bonds? Should I be selling them? But they spend very little time thinking about how much do I pay my advisor? How, what mutual funds, how much do I pay them? Because it's a cost that they never really see. Mm-hmm. But the example I often say is like if you're a million dollar port, uh, have a million dollar portfolio and you're paying 2% in fees a year, Think about showing up on Jan 1 every year with $20,000 in cash in right. 20s, so more than, more than, it's going to be a lot bigger than 100s, and giving that to your advisor rather than, and that's every year. That's a much different behavioral thought process to money than, than it coming out of your account automatically every month. Sorry, that's the, the long-winded answer. That's the second so longest I'll say surprisingly irrelevant relative to fees paid. I think the whole model is going to change overall, right? This whole, um, we, we really, as far as our industry is concerned, we need to look at value-based pricing as a mechanism of being able to earn revenue for what we do rather than looking at, for example, fees to some extent. That's a whole nother conversation, but let's continue this, this word associate, uh, maybe three more. Okay. Warren Buffett. Um, the first two that came to mind, and I feel like this is the way you have to do word association, like uh-huh. just to be very honest about it. And it's yeah. not what I would probably say if giving first, literally the first word that came to mind was old. I feel bad because I love, we, we tra- we write a lot about Warren Buffett. He's obviously, and then the second was brilliant. So <laughs> old and brilliant. he gets old and brilliant. Okay. Janet Yellen. No opinion. <laughs> Final one. This conversation. 
Uh, great. Although I feel like I'm going to be not be able to talk the rest of the day. I think if we were going for 10 more minutes, I feel like I would eventually start croaking and my voice would, would collapse as I've had a bit of a bit of a cold. So thankfully we're winding it down because I I don't think I could go much longer. (laughs) We we are done. Thank you very much, Meb. It was great. Look forward to doing it again uh, sometime in the future. Sure. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 